DiscerningHearts.com and the Seeking Truth Catholic Bible Study presents Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon Doran, along with her husband Steve, are founders of the Seeking Truth Catholic Bible Study, whose mission is to actively seek truth and raise up disciples for our Lord Jesus Christ through an in-depth Catholic Bible study. Sharon, who holds two master's degrees in education and in pastoral theology with an emphasis in sacred scripture, is an experienced Bible study teacher for over a decade. She has a passion for scripture that motivates and challenges her students to immerse themselves in God's word and apply his message to their everyday lives. We now begin the Seeking Truth Catholic Bible Study with Sharon Doran. Through his parables, Jesus both revealed and concealed. Jesus used the parables to reveal truths about his kingdom, yet he sometimes concealed his true identity as Messiah, perhaps so that his plan for salvation would not be thwarted before the appointed hour of his death on the cross. When we look at the parables of Jesus through Middle Eastern traditions and Jewish customs, they really come to life. Understanding the cultural details contained in the parables can really help us appreciate the power of these amazing stories. St. Luke was the only evangelist to record the parable of the prodigal son. It's one of my own personal favorites. Please listen to this beautiful description about the parable of the prodigal son taken from the Catechism of the Catholic Church at number 1439. The process of conversion and repentance was described by Jesus in the parable of the prodigal son, the center of which is the merciful father. The fascination of illusory freedom the abandonment of the father's house, the extreme misery in which the son finds himself after squandering his fortune, his deep humiliation at finding himself obliged to feed swine, and still worse, at wanting to feed on the husks the pigs ate, his reflection on all he has lost, his repentance and decision to declare himself guilty before his father, the journey back, the father's generous welcome, the father's joy. All these are characteristic of the process of conversion. The beautiful robe, the ring, and the festive banquet are symbols of that new life, pure, worthy, and joyful of anyone who returns to God and the bosom of his family, which is the church. Only the heart of Christ who knows the depths of his Father's love could reveal to us the abyss of his mercy in so simple and beautiful a way. Let's join our Seeking Truth Catholic Bible Study Lecture Series now for part two on the parables of Jesus. So I used to play this game with my boys and I'd read them parables and I'd say, put your, put your parable ears on because you have to hear parables differently. On that day, Jesus went out of, the, out of the house and sat down by the sea and such large gathered crowds gathered around him. He got in a boat, sat down and the whole crowd stood along the shore. Again, we see him sitting down to teach the chair. And he spoke to them at length in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell on the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some seed fell on the path. Look at this path. When you walk on a path, it's beaten down and hard. 
Sometimes life beats us down. Things are hard. We're wounded. We're beaten down. Nothing will penetrate. We become calloused and hard and bitter. <laughs> it's hard to penetrate a path because it's so packed down. Some fell on rocky ground where it had little soil. It sprang up at once because the soil was not deep enough. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. It withered for lack of roots. This is rocky ground in the Mediterranean. There's little soil, lots of rocks. It's hard for things to grow in that. The roots can't get down. There's not enough soil. And when the hot sun comes out, it scorches the seed. There's not roots. Some seed fell among thorns. The thorns grew up and choked it out. Here are briars and thorns in the Holy Land. Thorny soil that chokes out the seed. How can you grow in that? But some seed fell on rich soil and produced fruit, 160, 30-fold. Whoever has ears ought to hear. Some seed fell on rich soil and produced fruit. It rooted. It grew. It took. It worked. Rich soil. Who's the sower? Jesus. Who's the seed? Jesus. He's the sower and the seed. He's the word. He's the word made flesh. The time of Jesus on earth is the time of sowing and the time of the seed. The word is made flesh. He's right among them. And he's sowing the word in their hearts. He's telling stories. The gospels will be written. It's living word. The kingdom of God is present in seed form. It's tiny. It's just starting this kingdom. How are the hearts going to receive him? He gives four soil types, packed, stony, thorny, and good soil. And he gives the answer to this one, the seed so to the apostles only. The seed sown on the path is the one who hears the word of God without understanding it, and the evil one comes and steals it away, what's sown in his heart. It's that hard-packed soil. The seed can't get down there. It's too hard, and the, the birds can easily pick it off. They're hungry. The seed sown on rocky ground is the one who hears the word, receives it at once with joy, but it has no root. It just lasts for a short time. When tribulation or persecution comes, it immediately falls away. It's not deep enough. The roots don't go down. So here's the birds picking off the path, and here's the shallow root that can't go far because of those rocks. Persecution, trial, it, it, I, my faith's not deep enough for that. I can't handle those things. Then there's the thorny ground, the worldly anxiety and lures and riches of the world choke it out. And then there's the good soil, the good soil where the roots can go down, where, where it's cared for and nourished and nurtured. So you have to ask, what is the condition of my heart soil? Where is my heart in all this? Is God's word taking root in my life? Is God's word made flesh the word made flesh is Jesus. Is Jesus taking root in me? Has he found fertile heart soil here? Has he found a dwelling space, a place he could grow and flourish and go deeper? I always pray for my kids for conviction that the Holy, and for myself, that the Holy Spirit would convict us of any sin in our life. Those are like weeds. You know how dandelions come in the spring? Even if you have the best lawn, there's always dandelions in the spring. Weeds in our life sin, and they're hard to root out. And if you pull, they have really deep tap roots. And if you pull one off and snap it, what happens? It grows right back. 
And sometimes, I mean, I've fallen over trying to get a really hard dandelion. They go down deep. There is sin in our life that's deep that we can't root out without his help, without the conviction of the Holy Spirit and his grace in our life to get rid of it. Because they take over the weeds do. And they are stubborn and they are deep and they are hard to get rid of on our own. And then when you do get one of those great big deep ones out, it leaves a big hole in your lawn. And so we got to fill up that hole with Jesus and his word, with more seeds of good things, keeping that soil fertile and soft and supple. Because if you don't, you know what happens when you have a yard of dandelions and they all mature and a wind comes and the sin, the sin just spreads like wildfire. So how deeply have I let him grow in my life? Are there sins that are choking him out? Am I watering regularly? Am I taking care of my garden? Am I drinking from the wellspring of salvation? Am I going to mass? Am I fertilizing every once in a while? Maybe a retreat or a novena or fasting with almsgiving and prayer, reading lives of saints, listening to music. Those are all things that fertilize our garden. How fertile is our heart soil? Confession is the best. Confession, reconciliation in the year of the faith. It's the sacrament of the year of the faith. Reconciliation, it helps keep our hearts soft our soil fertile. And then how receptive are you to God's word? The most receptive, perfect human model of receptivity is Mary. She's just so open to both the sower and the seed. Be it done unto me according to your word. She is so receptive, so receptive. And then the last chapter here, Luke 15, is the lost and found chapter. And there's three quick parables I'll go over. The first one's about sheep, the parable of the lost sheep. And I want you to see how Luke lays these out, because that's important too. There was, what man among you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, would not leave the other 99 in the desert and go after the lost one until he finds it? So you leave the 99 and go after the one. And when he does find it, he sets it on his shoulders with great joy. And upon his arrival home, he calls together all his friends and neighbors and says, Rejoice with me. Rejoice with me. I found my sheep. And I tell you, in just the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who have no need of repentance. That's the first story. The second story in the same chapter, Lost and Found, is about a woman who has 10 coins and she loses one. Who wouldn't light a lamp and look for that one last coin and sweep the house, searching carefully until she finds it? And when she does find it, she calls together her friends and neighbors and says to them, rejoice with me because I found the coin that I lost. Now, I lost a penny the other day and I didn't call the whole neighborhood over when I found it. <laughs> In the same way, I tell you, there will be rejoicing among levels of God, the angels of God, over one sinner who repents. No big deal, a lost coin, right? Well, I'll, t I'll, I'll give you some um, historical context here. I like um, these books by Kenneth Bailey, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes and Poet and Peasant, Through the Peasant's Eyes in the Middle East. The coin may have been part of the woman's wedding dowry. Bedouin women wear their dowry in the form of coins hanging on their veils. So the loss of a single coin is more symbolic because it's the loss of something bigger. That's why it's a big deal. 
they wear these coins. This is her wedding dowry. This is what she'll get a husband with. And one's missing. Oh, no, and it's right in the middle of her forehead. Everyone's going to know. She's never going to get a husband now. Oh, no, my coin's missing. Oh, no, oh, no, what is she going to do? So she sweeps the whole house. I haven't been out today. I know it's got to be in the house. I haven't left the house. It has to be in here. Oh, no, where is it? Where is it? She lights the lamp. She's crawling around. She's sweeping. Oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. I found it. I found it. I found my coin. I found it. I found it. Girls, girls, I can get married now. I mean, you know, you can see. Do you see? It's a little different when you know it through Middle Eastern eyes. And there's rejoicing because she's found her coin. So those are the first two. So in the lost sheep story, it's a one to 100 ratio. In the last coin story, it's a one to 10. One out of the 10 coins is missing. Okay, it's increasing here. She's searching in a more narrowly confined place, but if she's willing to put forth sufficient effort, that last coin can be found. It's there somewhere. The sheep is lost in the wilderness, could be anywhere, but it's a one to 100. Then it goes down to a 1 to 10, and the next story is about a father and a lost son, and it's a 1 to 1. It's a 1 to 1 relationship. And it's the parable of the lost son. And Jesus said, a man had two sons, and the younger son said to the father, Father, give me my share of the estate. That should, come between, that should come, be coming to me. So the father divided the property between the two boys. Both of these sons have a very strained relationship with their father. Neither of them have a good relationship with the father. And you say, how does she know that from that? From these books. For, for, look, with the Middle Eastern eyes, it is greatly disrespectful and never done in the Middle East for a son to ask for his inheritance early. Ever, ever, ever would this be done. This is like wishing a death threat upon the father. Father, I can't wait for you to die. Give me my money now. This would just never, ever, ever be done. The community would have been outraged. The whole town would have heard about it. They would have been outraged. And the older son should have been outraged and defended his father and said, no way. You don't talk to dad like that. But the older son remained silent. This is an indication of rejection of his responsibility to reconcile his brother to the father. That was his job as an oldest son. Now, the father demonstrates almost unbelievable love by granting the son his request. This is true freedom. After that horrible insult, he gives him everything. And after a few days, the younger son collects all his belongings and sets off to a distant country where he squanders all of his inheritance on a life of dissipation. And when he had freely spent everything, everything. A severe famine struck the country, and he found himself in dire need. So he hired himself out as a local citizen. He spent all his time at a farm tending swine. And he longed to eat his fill of the pods on which the swine fed, but nobody gave him any. Carob pods. <laughs> Those are carob pods. In Aramaic literature, it is an edible pod eaten by the poor of the poor. And it's a food that symbolized repentance. The rabbis would say, Israel needs carob, which means poverty, to be forced into repentance. Hmm. So he has hit his rock bottom. He wants to eat carob pods. He's living with pigs. This isn't real kosher. Coming to his senses, he thought, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food to eat? And 
here I am sitting with these pigs. I'm here dying from hunger. I'm going to go up to my father. I'm going to say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. Treat me as you would one of your hired workers. And he's getting this plan ready in his mind, going over it, rehearsing it. Treat me as you would treat one of your hired workers. This can be translated to fashion out of me. Fashion out of me. Father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but fashion out of me a new man. Father, fashion out of me a servant who could serve you, who would be obedient and humble. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Father, fashion out of me. So, so he has this plan in his mind. He's not, he's not going to, he's, he's planning to work. He's going to earn the father's love back. I'll work for you. I'll be your servant. I'm no longer your son. He's not going to ask for any favors. No grace is asked or expected. But what does the father do? He gets up and goes back to the father. And while he's still a long way off, the father catches sight of him and he runs He's filled with compassion, and he runs to his son, and he embraces him, and he kissed him. Be quiet and allow the father to kiss you. The father comes running out, throws his arms around him, doesn't say anything. Rather than experiencing the ruthless hostility he deserves and anticipated, the son is witnessing an unexpected visible demonstration of love and humiliation. Old fathers don't run out. They don't scan the horizon every second waiting. They don't run. The father action replaces all speech. There are no words of acceptance and welcome. The love expressed is too profound for words. Be quiet and allow God to kiss you. The father makes the reconciliation public at the edge of the village. Everyone could have seen this, the whole town. They all know what's happening. The sons come home. The father ran. He hugged him. He kissed him. The village was angry at the prodigal son. His selfishness affected all of them. The son enters the village now under the protective care of the father's acceptance. And his son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven, and I've sinned against you, and I no longer deserve to be called your son. But the father ordered his servants, quickly bring the finest robe we have and put it on him. Guess whose would be the finest robe in the whole household? The father's. The father's own robe would be the finest. Isaiah 61.10, For he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me with a robe of righteousness. Put a ring on his finger. Put sandals on his feet. Well, the signet ring means that he's trusted in a remarkable way. He's just sinned, left, squandered everything, and he's trusted by the Father in a remarkable way. The sandals mean that he's a free man, not a slave, not a servant. They're barefoot. He puts sandals on his feet. You're not a servant. This is a new relationship with the Father. Nothing the Son has earned. He's lost everything. He's squandered all the Father's money. He shattered the original Father-Son relationship. This new relationship is sheer gift from the Father, sheer gift. And then he says, take the fatted calf, slaughter it, let's celebrate, let's have a feast. When you slaughter a calf, there's lots of meat. It has to be used in, in a few hours or it'll spoil in the Mediterranean sun. He's planning a communal feast for the whole village. And because the son was dead and now he's come to life again, he was lost, but now he's been found. And the celebration began. In all three parables, there's a communal aspect. When we sin, we always sin against the entire body of Christ. So in all three, there's a communal celebration. Did you notice that? 
Something was lost in all three stories, and something was found in all three stories. One to 100, one to 10, and one to one. A one to one relationship with the father son. Now, the oldest son is mad. He's been out in the field, he's on his way back, he hears the music and dancing, he calls one of the servants and says, what's going on? Now, we're gonna have a banquet, the, the son's home, your brother's home. And at a family banquet, the older son had an official responsibility to help preside over the family feast. He's expected to move among the guests, to welcome them, to offer compliments, to make sure they have enough food and drink. The oldest son would stand barefoot at the front door to the guests, to, to uh, so the, it's like the father saying, my oldest son is the servant of all. He's the host for the night. And he's sulking and he won't come in the house. This is an absolute insult to his father in the Middle East. He became angry. He refused to enter the house. The father had to come out and plead with him. This is super embarrassing for the father. At a Middle Eastern dinner party, the, the son is home. They're celebrating. The older son's out there sulking, won't come in the house, won't welcome the guests. So the father again shows a costly, extravagant love. He leaves the banquet, super humiliating in the Middle East, and he goes out to plead with the older son out of sheer love. This father is incredible. And the son says, look, all these years, I, I, not once did you throw me a party. I was a slave for you, out of obligation. This isn't out of love, his relationship with the father. It's out of obligation. Your son returns, the one who swallowed up your, your property with prostitutes, and you slaughtered the calf for him? And the father says, my son, you are here with me always. Everything I have is yours. But now we must celebrate and rejoice because your brother was dead, and he's come back to life. He was lost, and he's been found. No matter what situation in your life seems dead, it can be resurrected. It can be brought back to life because of the love of the father. The older son's like the Jews. The younger son could be like the Gentiles. The older son, firstborn of Israel, has the blessing, has the birthright. The secondborn son is a son by adoption. The Jews serve the Lord out of obligation. 613 mitzvot laws they had to obey. It became an obligation, a noose around their neck. But the Gentiles, see how they love one another? Paul says, make them jealous. Make the Jews jealous so they come back. Make my own people jealous. He talks about that in Romans 11. God wants our love to come out of freedom, not obligation. That's what love is. He wants us willing, receptive, open hearts, fertile heart soil. And he wants a one-on-one -on -one relationship with his son or his daughter. He wants a relationship with you, with me, personal. He wants all the prodigals to come back home. And it's a gift of sheer grace. And it's a year of jubilee when all the debts are forgiven. He wants to just shower you with grace, shower you with mercy, shower you with love. Whatever has kept you estranged from the Father, he wants us back. Friends, thank you so much for joining me in our discussion of the parables. Jesus was so creative in his teaching methods. I can read the parables over and over again and still each time get new insights into situations applicable to my own 21st century life. It's amazing. God's word is just so alive and so creative. Hebrews tells us that his word is living and active, and I have so found that to be true. Through God's word, 
the Holy Spirit is able to penetrate our thoughts and our hearts. I encourage you, friends, in your prayer time this week to choose a parable or two. And before you read it, just pray and ask the Holy Spirit to open up your heart and mind to his understanding for you today. And then slowly read the parable a couple times. Just sit with it in prayer. Pray with it and see where the Lord strikes your heart with a phrase or a word or a certain idea or a certain character. And put yourself right into the scene. Uh, let your imagine go. Put yourself in the scene as one or more of the characters. Try a couple of them and just see where he wants to teach you through his parables as you meditate on them and pray with them. Please listen to what the Catechism of the Catholic Church says about praying with parables. You can find it in the Catechism at number 2613. Three principal parables on prayer are transmitted to us by St. Luke. The first, the importunate friend, invites us to urgent prayer. Knock, and it will be opened to you. To the one who prays like this, the Heavenly Father will give whatever he needs, and above all, the Holy Spirit who contains all gifts. The second, the importunate widow, is centered on one of the qualities of prayer. It is necessary to pray always without ceasing and with the patience of faith. And yet, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? The third parable, the Pharisee and the tax collector, concerns the humility of the heart that prays. God be merciful to me, a sinner. The Church continues to make this prayer its own. Kyrie eleison. Oh, yes. God be merciful to me, a sinner. Lord have mercy, Kyrie eleison. Until next time, friends, keep seeking truth. Truth has a name. His name is Jesus. If you seek him, you will find him. He is waiting and longing to be found by you. Keep seeking truth. You've been listening to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To hear and or to download this episode, along with many others, go to discerninghearts.com. To learn how you can become a participant, either online or in a classroom setting of the Seeking Truth Catholic Bible Study, go to seekingtruth.net. This has been a production of discerninghearts.com and the Seeking Truth Catholic Bible Study. Join us next time for Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.